the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jason. The kiddos can now be dismissed for their scripture time, grades three and below. All right, Brian. Grab your Bible or, or the Bible in the uh, seat in front of you. Um, there's a lot in that that Jason just read for us, and we're going to look at some of that uh, today. It's uh, page 466 in the, the Bible there in the seats, if you would like to <clears throat> use that one. Have you uh, ever thought that maybe life is not that satisfying. Um, I've had days, I'm sure you will resonate with this, that I call anti-Midas days. If you remember, King Midas had the touch. Everything he touched turned to gold. And I've had days where everything I touch turns to lead. But maybe the dissatisfaction of life is not quite that. That's more like if you're if you're into astrology, you say the stars are you know, aligned against you. Or if you're in Greek mythology, the muses are singing against you. Or if you're superstitious, you've gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. But that kind of dissatisfaction with life is, is kind of minor, isn't it? There are some dissatisfactions that are much greater. Maybe the rough waters of grief or the illnesses that affect us all, even as Lauren prayed for some of those today, or careers that are tanking or on the wrong trajectory. Same with marriages. There's a lot of reasons to be dissatisfied with how life is going. But there's another level too. Maybe life is, is not satisfying because of, of what others are doing. Maybe you've been unfairly treated. We're actually oppressed. Or, or perhaps you've been taken advantage of um, or betrayed by friends that you, that you loved and thought you could trust. And then there's even another level of dissatisfaction where you're, you're dissatisfied because of what others are doing, but what they're doing is actually ignoring God, or opposing Him, or mocking Him. And it brings up envy. The envy that we see here in the first verse of 37. Uh, maybe there's a, a family down the street that seems to have it all. They're always on the cool vacations. and they, But they, they have no interest in God. You feel a little bit envious of them. Maybe if you're a young person, a teen, and you see the guys who are popular because they're willing to tell off-color jokes or cruel jokes or, or act in a way that you just simply can't as a believer. A little bit envious of that popularity. Or teen girls, or young, young girls who are willing to use their attractiveness, show a little skin to gain attention and popularity, and you can't do that. A little envious of the attention they get. Or perhaps you just want 
companionship. And you look around in our days and, and sexuality becomes the way to just get someone with you. Envious. And then there's always the wealthy who have gained their wealth even though they oppose or even mock God. How, how do they have it? And I don't. There's different levels of life not being satisfying. And if any one of those three levels touches you in any way, then Psalm 37 is for you. Because this is a psalm about the difficulties, the struggles, the trials of the righteous. And the righteous in this psalm are those who are trying to live according to the law of God. The Israelites who are trying to follow the covenant. They're not, we're not yet at the point where we're going to read Paul's idea of righteousness of God, the complete fulfillment of it. But this is the covenantal attempt to, to follow God and do what He wants. This is the righteous in this psalm. And things are not easy for them. It's also about the power and the prosperity and the outright fierce antagonism of the wicked. And the wicked in this psalm are also Israelites. They're not the pagans. But they're the Israelites who are ignoring God, who are mocking Him, the scoffers, like in Psalm 1, who aren't paying attention to Him. And so this struggle that goes on in this psalm between those who are trying to follow God and it's not going well and, it's, and they're wondering why is life so dissatisfying and they look over and they see the prosperity of the wicked. Um, peace, it says here. It's actually the shalom. It reminds of, of Psalm 73 where Asaph sees the false prosperity of the wicked. He almost loses his faith. Because how can they have it? And I'm trying to follow God and I don't have it. So Psalm 70, or 37 is for, for all of us as we struggle to live a faithful life in this world. And we're going to unpack it a little bit this morning. I'd like to talk about the psalm because it's not an easy one. Um, before we start looking at the text itself, Psalm 37 is an acrostic psalm. And that means that every two lines start with a successive letter of the alphabet. So, in, let me just use English. The first two lines would begin with A. The next two lines would begin with B. A word that begins with B. And so it's, it's a very artful composition. But one of the things about uh, acrostic psalms, Psalm 119 is an acrostic, Psalm 27, 25, I mean, there are others, is... They're profound, but they don't flow real well because the poet is bound by finding the word to start with that has a certain letter. And so in Psalm 37, as with some of these other psalms, the ideas tend to circle around. It's hard to find a flow to the psalm. Um, there's been a lot of uh, guesses on what the structure is. I think maybe the best one is by uh, Gerald Wilson. He... Um, can you forward that slide there? This thing is not. Yeah. He, he notes that the words cut off and inherit, uh, inherit the land, occur frequently in the psalm. And so he lays it out uh, in these sections. 
verses 1 through 9, a solution to fretting, and then the way of the wicked, and then you see the way of the righteous, and then an exhortation to confidence, and then finally defining the future. Um, this is as good a, a thing as any, and, and I think the, the value of it is, even though I wouldn't want to put my back to the wall that this is the structure of Psalm 37, it does point out what I think is going on here for the, uh, the people that the psalmist is writing to. It says it's a psalm of David. It could have been written by David. It could have been written for David. It could have been written to David. Um, and, and now's not the place to make it a definitive statement, but we are to interpret this around David. So we'll just, we'll just say this is David's psalm. Um, what seems to be happening is that the wicked are actually dispossessing the poor and the humble of the land. This is a huge deal in the Old Testament because God said that the land is His. He says that in Leviticus 25. The land, it belongs to me. And yet the majority of Joshua from chapters 13 to 21 is where, how God divides the land up into His people. That this tribe gets this and this section, clan gets that. And, and so the the people of Israelite lived on their land, and they didn't view it the way we do. You know, if we get a job offer in San Diego, we sell our house here and we go buy one in San Diego, right? They didn't do that. That was their land forever. It was passed down from generation to generation because it was their proof that they belonged to God's people. God, through His leaders, had given them that land. They could go out and pick up the dirt, and as it sifted through their fingers, they knew that they belonged to God. And when the wicked come along, and through economic means, by through debt, and through trickery, they, they take that land away from the poor so that they don't have the land, it was a massive disorientation for them. They, they had inherited the land, but they weren't possessing it. And that's the point of the psalm. Who gets to live in the land with God? Is it going to be the wicked who seem to be doing it? Or is it going to be those who are trying to follow Him and yet are being abused and oppressed? And so this, I think that this idea of cutting off or, or inheriting lies behind uh, what's going on. You can see the cause of anger and frustration and disorientation and confusion. Does the God not see what's going on? There's a story in, in Kings where uh, the evil king Ahab sees a vineyard that belongs to Naboth and he wants that vineyard. And he goes to Naboth and he says, I want your vineyard. And Naboth says, this vineyard was given to me by God. This is for my family. No. And Jezebel, his wife, says, hey, there's a good solution for this. We'll kill him and you take the land. It's a perfect example, I think, of what's going on here. The wicked, it says in here, are seeking to kill the righteous. They take their land. They deprive it through economic means. And so the poor and the humble and the meek are being um, oppressed. And there is that deep dissatisfaction with life because of what's happening to them. Does God not care about these things? Do we not 
think about in verse 7 there, the one who's prospering in his, in his ways, who's carrying out evil devices, the schemes and the plots that they have against his people. <clears throat> the fact is that he does. And the psalm is designed to tell them that he, that, that he is worth waiting for. Twice in this psalm it says, wait for him. Right? We wait for him to act and he will do it. It's like Psalm 73, but it's not quite as acute. There, there Asaph was almost in the, in the throes of losing his faith. Here, it doesn't seem that the psalmist is quite to that point, but he does realize that things are just not right, that, that life is dissatisfying in that they are being um, oppressed, that they are being mistreated by those who mock God, that they are having financial, even food, troubles from the lack of land because they, they lived off the land. And so that's kind of where Psalm 37 is aimed at, addressing people who are looking at life and going, it's not supposed to be this way. And what is God doing? We're trying to follow Him and, and we're getting the short end of the stick. Is He worth the wait? Well, Psalm 37, I think, kind of splits up this way. Verses 1 through 9 seem to be a sequence of how you deal with this kind of situation. And then verses 10 through 40 are the perspective that we're to have as we look out on life and seeing it God's way. So what I'd actually like to do is, is, to, is to switch those. And let me kind of survey verses uh, 10 through 40 and bring out a few points then, and then we'll come back and spend a little time on verses 1 through 9 on how to wait, how to wait effectively. So let's look at uh, the perspective that we're to have from, um, from verses 10 through 40. And the first is, let's look at the three characters in Psalm 37. First are the wicked. These are the ones who know better, and yet they are ignoring God and disobeying Him. Uh, the first thing that we note is their time is fleeting. Look at verse 2. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Or verse 10, in a little while the wicked will be no more. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. And then even in 36, that example of, of the, uh, <clears throat> the man who was 35 and 36, who was a tree, not just grass, but a tree, rooted it seems. And yet the author goes, when I went back and looked for him, he was gone. The fleetingness of the wicked is brought out. They may seem to be winning now, but soon that will be over. They're the God's enemies. You see that in verse 20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of pastures. There it is again. They vanish like smoke. Remember Psalm 1? Like chaff that the wind blows away. The enemies have no substance. They're, 
they're the enemies of the Lord, and so they are the enemies of the righteous. They're the ones who plot against them in verse 12. And also then over in verse 32, they watch for the righteous. They scheme to put them to death. And so there are, their time is coming soon, and they're enemies of God, and they have no relationship with Him. That's why. The words cut off come out of the law, and, and it's, a, it's an interesting term. What it means basically is you're expelled, you're kicked out. You no longer belong to the people of God. But it, it's not quite that simple. Oftentimes being cut off was accompanied by being killed for what you did. And perhaps even more importantly, that whole idea of having the land forever, to be cut off meant that your posterity was gone. Your name essentially was just erased from the annals of Israel. You can see that over in, um, in verse 38. Transgressors shall be altogether destroyed or cut off. The future of the wicked shall be cut off future there that the translators had to make a decision because that word could either be future or it could be posterity the children the posterity this family just cut off because they have no relationship with the lord and yet it is the righteous who are going to endure isn't it so judgment is certain for these people it's coming, and it's coming soon. And though they draw their sword in verse 14, and they have their, bend their bows to aim at the, at the wicked, look what's going to happen to them. It's the sword is going to enter their own heart. They're going to get their just desserts. They seem to be winning now, the psalmist says. But it will not be that way for long. James May says that the wicked are those who are convinced that power and prosperity are generated better by their own autonomy than by discipleship. They can get it. And so they, they seek it in the face of God. They try to make their own way, their own values, and they're opposed to God. Second, then, are the righteous. And everything I just said is basically the opposite for them. Instead of the autonomy and the pride, we see that they are humble and they are meek and waiting on the Lord. In fact, if you look at verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land, that's what Jesus quoted in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the humble who, who have seen themselves rightly before God who have a future, and their future is they will inherit the land and dwell on it forever now remember what that means if God gave them the land so that he could live with them in his land them as his people they are basically long-term tenants of him on his land in relationship with him when he says you will inherit the land forever it, from New Testament perspective he's basically saying I will give you eternal life you will be my people in relationship with me, in harmony. All is right, and you will live on the land. You won't be cut off. Your name won't be erased. You are mine, and I will be with you forever. The great contrast of futures, your children. Well, their children will be cut off in verse 28. Your children will become a blessing 
in verse 26. The future is completely opposite. The purpose of God in living with His people in the land is fulfilled. It's a picture of what He wants to do with gathering His people together to be with Him forever. And so the, the, the righteous have tremendous amount of promises and assurances about their children, about their prosperity, about God providing for them. And although some of these are, are statements of an old man, he says, I've, I was young and now I'm old, they're statements of an old man who has seen this time and time again. Well, we know, like, uh, take verse 25, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or children begging for bread. I think he had never seen it, but, but we know from other passages that God allows his children to go through difficult things and this is not a blanket promise that this will never happen rather is a blanket promise that he's saying God will always be faithful whatever happens to you and that God does take care of his own and I haven't seen him not do it that makes sense so I think that we see the psalmist saying the experience of the faithful is that God takes care of his own and yet we know even today some of our brothers and sisters will probably lose their lives for the sake of our Lord but the promises and the assurances that God is with them, He is their refuge, He's their stronghold, it says at the very end, He helps them, He delivers them. These are the true promises that God has given to His people. And their faithfulness is what is, distinguishes them from those who try to live their own way. And so as we look at our lives and, and some of the dissatisfaction, we see that the, the choice between two different lifestyles couldn't be more stark. And the psalmist says, choose this one. And the reason that we choose this one is because of the third character. And rest assured, I did not put these three in order of priority because I think God would come first. But the fact is that throughout the psalm, what is presented to the righteous is not God's stuff. Don't, don't seek God because when you seek God, then you'll get good stuff eventually. Just hold on. What the psalmist is saying is that what you wait for is God Himself. That whether the stuff comes or the stuff doesn't come, and he says the Lord will take care of you, what is on offer, so to speak, is actually God himself. The relationship that he wanted with his people, blessed by the Lord, their refuge, their strength, their deliverer, their protector, all of these things is what he longs to be for those when they humble themselves in meekness and striving to behave in righteous behavior towards him in obedience to what he wants. And so the question is, is he worth the wait? And the answer is yes. Look at all that he does for his people in this. And this is very interesting. There is one time in this whole psalm that the Lord has a direct interaction with the wicked. And he says there's lots of them for the righteous. He'll take care of them and so on. There's one time where he has a direct interaction. Look at verse 13. The wicked plot against the righteous, gnash his teeth, the Lord laughs at the wicked. 
The only interaction he has with the wicked is he laughs at them. Their efforts will come to nothing. Because he sees that his day is coming, his time is drawing short, and yet the Lord's plan will be fulfilled forever in the lives of those of his who follow him. So he is worth the wait. Even in difficult times, even when things are dissatisfying, whether they be the small ones or the, the big problems of life or, or when we're treated poorly, betrayed by others, or when we're envious because we would like life to be different than it is. Any of those, we see that God is saying, actually, this is the way that you think. So that's the perspective that the psalmist lays out uh, as the, the ideas swirl back and forth, that we wait for the Lord and keep His way. Many of the ideas that, that occur in the first nine verses are spread throughout the, the second part of it. But ultimately, that dichotomy is what the psalm is about. Are you going to live the way of the wicked, or are you going to be the way of the righteous? So having said that, then, let's go back and think about in verses... Um, can you hit that forward again? I think this might be operator error. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, how do we wait well? There's the th how do we look at this and say, okay, well, it's pretty clear that we should follow the way of the righteous, right? It's pretty clear that we should do what this psalmist is saying, but how? How do we do this when life can be so overwhelming? How do we do this when the troubles can kind of threaten to take us under? And I think that David gives us some great suggestions here of how we do this in verses 1 through 9. He leads off with a sequence, and it is a sequence, of how we can wait well in the face of difficulties in life. The first thing that I would like to say, the foundation thing, and it's not one of the sequences, but it's, it's not possible for us to go past it unless we talk about it, is look at how many times in the first nine verses the divine name Lord is used or pronouns referring to Him. In nine verses, there's ten different times that His name is used, four or six pronouns. This is about God. This is about Israelites who had a relationship with God, who had a covenant relationship with God that they were striving to live with Him and, and follow Him, obey Him, receive His benefits. God had taken them, had brought them out of Egypt, had redeemed them, had made them His people. This is a psalm, however, that is about 3,000 years old written to people on the other side of the globe. And as we try to apply it to ourselves, we have to say, who is our covenant with? And as we look at these nine verses, we have to realize that we belong to the new covenant, that the Lord that we deal with, the Him 
who is going to act in here is the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have to have a relationship with Him now in the covenant that is in His blood. And so we have to approach this with the ground rule that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That we're trusting Him. That we're realizing He has come and has brought us into the people of God. That He has forgiven our sins as we have trusted Him to do so. What we could not do for ourselves. That He has made us new children of God, and we come now as His people, identifying here with the righteous, but identifying with the righteous who have been brought into God's family through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, it has to be deeply, for us in this new covenant, this has to be deeply Christocentric, Jesus-centered, as we look at it. So having said that first thing, that we have a covenant relationship with God through our Lord Jesus, the first thing he says is, stop fretting. I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the video of Bob Newhart. He was an old comedian, and he played the role of a counselor in his sitcom. And he had a lady come in, and she had a counseling problem. And so he sat down, she laid it out for him, and, and the joke was, he says, okay, I got a solution for you. Stop it. And that was, they kind of played it out. It was pretty funny. It was, Stop it. That's kind of what it sounds like David is saying, right? Stop. Don't fret not yourselves. Stop fretting. But it's actually much more than that. Van Gemmeren says in his, in his uh, commentary that the anger and resentment and jealousy that comes from looking out at the, at the wrongdoers who are succeeding is a poison that will destroy your faith in God's goodness and justice. And along with that, he says, it's going to affect your attitude towards everything else. That as we look out and, and our focus is what it should be and envious of what we don't have, that it's a poison to our souls. He says, stop thinking that way. Stop fretting. The psalmist gives us a second idea too, doesn't he? Look at verse 2. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. This is a very common idea in the psalms, that we look at our mortality and we face the fact that maybe we have 70 years, 80 years. My parents are getting close to 90 no matter what it is, it will soon be over. And the psalmist says, don't be focusing your time or your energy, your thought on these momentary times. Think about what comes after. Remember your mortality. Remember that whatever it appears like right now, the question is, will you be cut off or will you inherit forever? And so you think about not what the troubles are, but what the Lord is doing and what He's going to do. In a sense, we move our focus away from our problems and what we're thinking, and we think about God and the more eternal problems. We take on an eternal perspective away from the fleetingness of life. That's the first thing, is to move our thoughts away from the things that are bringing fretting and trouble, anxiety, agitation, some translations have. And we begin to think about more eternal things. 
remembering who we are. At our days, Psalm 103, we are like grass, that the wind blows over and its place is known no more. The second thing we do then is we trust in the Lord and do good. Uh, I've got trust A up there because this is an active trust. Right? Trust in the Lord and obey Him. Do what He says. We're active there in our trust that, that we are doing. If you love me, Jesus says, you're going to follow my commandments. And so we trust Him, submitting to His will, that He is going to solve and resolve the issues. And our part is to trust and obey. For there's no other way. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. This is one of those fun verses that if you pick up ten different versions, you're probably going to have ten different translations. Alec Moter, in his commentary, um, just cuts through it all. The, the word is shepherd faithfulness. And the idea is he's talking about pastures, so you have that idea in, in, um, in the NIV. In, and actually, I think it's down here. Yeah, find safe pasture. In, if you see at the note at the bottom of the ESV. Feed on faithfulness. Befriend faithfulness, I think, is probably the, the best that I've seen because it's cultivating faithfulness. Trust in Him. Do what is right. Cultivate faithfulness in you and your family and the children if you have them or those loved ones around you. That's how you live. And so you move in away from thinking about ourselves to thinking about what God wants to being faithful to Him, that is actually a, an unpacking of the transforming of the mind that Paul talks about in Romans 12. We, we've changed the way that we're thinking. We've changed what we think about away from our problems onto who the Lord is and what the Lord wants and how we can be faithful to Him. And so it's actually the transforming of the mind. And then, we delight in the Lord. This is an interesting one, isn't it? Delight in the Psalms is often combined with meditating, spending time with, that He becomes the value. Again, Jesus said, if you love Me, you're going to obey Me. That we, we begin to value Him because we're no longer spending time thinking about ourselves. We've moved our minds on to trusting and doing and developing faithfulness. And it shows ourselves, it shows up in our delighting in Him. I don't think that there is any way that this can happen if you're not willing to devote time to it. We delight or rather, we spend time in what we delight in. Amen. And if your delight is the Pittsburgh Penguins, that's about as close to delighting in the Lord as you're going to get. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, but if I delight in the Pittsburgh Penguins, I want to know how they're doing. I want to know how they played. I want to know. You get my point. I remember listening to a guy named Wallace Ben, who was a a bishop in the Anglican Church in England, and he had a vicar come to him one day, and the, and the guy said, I am so dry. I can't pray. I can't read. I, I'm just completely spiritually burnt out. 
And Wallace said, listen, here's what we're going to do. I'm taking you out of your parish for two months. And for two months, I want you to read the Gospels. I don't want you to study the Gospels. I don't want you to exegete the Gospels. I want you to read the Gospels. I want you to take two months and fall in love again with the person of the Gospels. Spend, spend time with them. Delight in them. Spend time at the foot of the cross in those long passion narratives and regain your passion for the Lord, your delight in Him. And as we do that, as we move away from, from concentrating on what, what agitates us, what we fret over, what it, and, and we begin to, to think about Him and what He wants and how do we obey Him, then we see that our desires even change, don't they? Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It would be a really bad thing if it says He'll give you the desires of your heart and you should delight in Him. It's the other way around. As we delight in Him, the desires are going to change and He is going to become the focus of our desires. We've totally transformed our minds by this time. We're thinking about things completely different. We used to think about the things in, the, in this dichotomy of the wicked, and now we're thinking about how wonderful God is and what can we do to be faithful to Him and think about Him. It's not an easy process, but it's a sequence. And then comes the difficult one. Commit your way. Trust. And you'll notice the B there because this trust is a much more passive one. Commit your way to the Lord is actually to roll your troubles onto Him, to, to give them over to Him. Van Gemeren says it's our feelings, our angers, our frustrations, our hopes, our dreams, our guilt, all of this because it's commit your way. Your way is the way of life. We don't do that so well because that is to give up control. That's not just the transforming of the mind. That, that's the will of saying, you deal with it. And I'm going to trust you. And The first kind of trust is easier, isn't it? Do good. At least we're doing something. We feel like we've got some measure of control here. But here we commit and we trust Him to act. We're very good about helping others. We can extend grace to other people. We can help other people deal with their problems, help other people deal with their guilt. It's hard for us to do it for ourselves. I've often said that it's much easier for Christians to acknowledge that God forgives than it is for Christians to forgive themselves. To, to roll it onto Him and say, it's yours. And yet this is what David tells us to do, to roll our problems onto Him, allow Him to be the one who controls, who leads, who guides, who ministers, who provides all the promises of this psalm. That doesn't mean that we're irresponsible or inactive. It means that we trust and give it to Him. And it says then that He will bring that righteousness. He will vindicate you. You will shine like the sun because he'll honor that trust. That's a hard one. Because we are intentionally, purposefully submitting ourselves to the Lord. Having done that, then we be still in verse 7. 
having rolled it onto him, we have the very difficult thing of handing it over and then taking our hands off and waiting on him, of trusting him to direct, of having him bring the peace that passes understanding and waiting patiently for him to act. The transforming of our mind, the release of our control, and, and then the patient waiting for Him. David says these are the ways that we deal with the struggles of life. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't work hard or we're not industrious or we're not. This is how we allow the Lord to have His role in our lives. To be righteous, trusting Him. To be the one who is the covenant king. That Jesus said, don't think about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. You focus on seeking after my righteousness. And my Father and I will make sure that you have all these things. This is very much in harmony with what we see in the New Testament, of what Jesus promises his people, of how we live. And then we're back in verses 7 through 9 to the bookend, the other, the other bookend of don't fret. It only brings evil it is only going to hurt it's only going to fo make you focus on the wrong things it's only going to have you participate in the types of thought that are going to end up getting the evildoers cut off to begin with the lord is going to give the land he's going to have that relationship with his people forever the ones who give him the rightful place and trust him jesus is going to do this for us as we endure the troubles that he gives us, the discipline that he brings. The he himself in, Roman, in Hebrews 12 endured the cross, looking forward to what lie ahead for him. The joy that was to be when he was reunited with his father. That is the example that we have here, giving him his rightful place, transforming our minds and our wills for His glory. When we do that, later in Hebrews 12, we have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We have the crown of glory. And ultimately, we have Jesus Himself. Amen. So let Psalm 37 guide you through the struggles of life, helping you to focus on our Lord Jesus and what He promises to do for us and how we can change, transform our minds to focus on Him and on His righteousness and on His glory. Let's pray. Father, help us to recognize in this psalm the great severity of those who follow You and those who don't that this is not something that you take lightly. Help us to use David's words to do the hard yards of having our minds transformed to be focusing on you, to giving ourselves as the sacrifices, as, Rome, as Paul says in Romans 12, as we give ourselves over to you, give our way to you to guide and to direct and to trust you in it. Lord, may it bring the peace that Jesus promised. 
May, we, may it bring the devotion to seek after righteousness and delight in you, that you might be our joy. May we place Jesus in his rightful place so that we can follow him through all the dissatisfactions of life, through all the struggles, that we can be constant and that we can inherit the life everlasting with you because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's take a few moments. Just think about this psalm before we come and sing our closing songs. Amen. The